0: Welcome to Prescribing Prosperity with your hosts, John and Alex Soutsos from MedWealth Financial Services, operating through IPC Securities Corporation. In this podcast, we provide unique insights into wealth management, the psychology of financial decisions, and help listeners place the capital markets into perspective. Our aim is to help physicians, business owners, and other medical professionals to live their dreams. Life is to live and enjoy, so we'll also cover health and lifestyle-related topics such as food, dining, travel, and unique experiences. Learn how global trends shape our investment strategy as we help you assemble
1: your roadmap to
0: prosperity.
1: Guys, I'm especially excited about your conversation today. You were talking about the generic drug manufacturing industry, and you couldn't have a more perfect guest Your guest is Catherine E. Ben. She is an award-winning investigative journalist, a best-selling author. She is a special correspondent to Vanity Fair, and she is an Andrew Carnegie Fellow. Her articles on pharmaceutical counterfeiting, gun trafficking, coercive interrogation by the CIA, and COVID's origins have won international attention and numerous awards. It is her second book, though, that we are focusing on today. That is Bottle of Lies. The Inside Story of the Generic Drug Boom, and it was a New York Times bestseller and one of New York Times' 100 Notable Books of 2019. So, without further ado, let us introduce Catherine Eban. Catherine, welcome. I hope you're doing well. Nice to see you. Thank you. It's
2: great to be with you. Catherine, um, you came to my attention while listening to Peter Atias. Uh, the drive podcast. Shout out there. uh, Peter Atiyah is a fellow Canadian. In fact, he's a fellow Torontonian as we are. And he has a a great podcast. So that's when you first came to my attention, Catherine, I I have a particular interest in in health matters for selfish reasons. And um, I found the subject matter fascinating. I after listening to the podcast, I went out, purchased your book. And over the course of a, a very long airplane trip, I read your book uh, o- uh, over five hours uh, two and five hours back, and then I had a little bit left over when I when I got back home. The book is unbelievable. And what's interesting is I, I I seem to recall that Peter in his podcast said that it made him angry, and that's exactly how I felt while I was reading the book. I was I was getting angry. I was getting angry at at the uh, at the system. That is that is in place for the introduction of of uh, pharmaceuticals and generic pharmaceuticals. I was getting angry at the oversight or lack thereof by the FDA. And uh, I'll I'll tell you though, as I was reading the book, I could not put it down. It was extraordinarily engaging. It was it was never mind engaging. It was it was absolutely riveting. And uh, you are an incredible storyteller. And I know this is a true story. But you're an incredible storyteller, and I really enjoyed uh, reading your book, and I've recommended it to many, many people. And uh, everyone listening to this podcast today, I recommend you go out and you purchase Bottle of Lies by Catherine E. Ben uh, as soon as you're done listening to our podcast, because it has incredible insights into what is going on in our world. And uh, as, as we all know, pretty much everyone over the age of 40 is on some type of medication and uh, it is important to understand where these things are are sourced and and the implications. Catherine for those who haven't haven't have not read your book can you give a brief synopsis of your investigation what was involved and what was uncovered before you get into the whole story.
3: Yeah so the brief synopsis is that this was The story is based on a 10 year investigation that I did into the global generic drug industry. The investigation took me to four continents. Uh, I spent time reporting in India and in China. I was able to expose the way in which global generic drug companies that we all depend on, we all take their products Routinely fake their quality data in order to accelerate approvals by regulators around the world. They do this as a kind of cat and mouse game with regulators and inspectors who show up. Uh, They deceive them in multiple ways. Uh, And the end result is that the drugs we're all taking, which we are told by our respective regulators, are essentially identical to the brand name drugs, are not. They haven't been tested properly. They may have different shelf lives. They may have different excipient or additional ingredients. They may not have the same stability. They may not have the same dissolution rate. And so this is really a book for anybody who wants a very intense global crime story. But also anybody who has ever taken a generic medication and thought, you know what, I'm not sure if it's the same as my brand name. I don't feel the same when I take it or it doesn't appear to be working in the same way or I was stable on a brand name drug or a different generic and now I am unstable. Yeah. And
2: since you mentioned that, that reminds me of, of an anecdote uh, with my my late mother She was very ill in the final five years of her life, and she was on all sorts of medications. And one day I was there and she said, would you go to the pharmacy and get me my medication? And I said, of course. And she said, make sure they give me the good drugs. I said, what do you mean? She says, I know there are cheap drugs and I know there are expensive drugs. Now, my mom is someone who never received a formal education uh, due to the uh, Second World War. and she she was obviously uh did not have advanced knowledge of of a lot of things but she knew that she didn't feel right when her medication was changed from brand name to generic she she felt the difference yeah. and i found it fascinating and at the time not knowing what what i've learned since then i i dismissed her concern saying no 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 the generics are the same as as uh, brand name they're the, it's it's the same stuff it's just Less expensive. And uh, clearly, your book shed light on that. And I was definitely wrong in uh, saying that to my mom. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go no, ahead, no, not you at care.
3: all. I mean, I will say that, you know, since the book came out, I've had many pharmacists come up to me and say that they felt incredible guilt <clears> after <throat> reading my book because they had many patients and customers who raised those concerns with them and they you know, reassured them or dismissed their concerns uh, by just saying, no, 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 it's the same, the same as, you know, what you told your mother. So there's no reason that consumers should know, you know, because our regulators tell us they're the same, right? But in fact, I actually was able to prove through a 10-year investigation that they are not the same.
4: I I think what also contributes to that is the uh, what I came to learn through this book is the misconception that, uh, and I shared this misconception, my understanding was always that generic drugs were essentially the same formula. The The patent was then shared with the generic manufacturers, mm-hmm. but because they don't have to incur the same R&D expense, expenditure, they can produce the exact same drug at, the, at a fraction of the cost. When in fact, even though the, the patents may expire, the companies who found the patents or come up with the initial research actively go out of their way to pre- prevent that information from being shared. And so a lot of, are being prevented from being shared, excuse me. And so what ends up happening is uh, the companies have to reverse engineer what they believe the the formula is. And, and obviously, it can't be the exact same formula, they have to change some components of it in order to not infringe upon the patents. And, and so it, it creates the opportunity for different effects. And I, I had no idea. And I, I don't think a lot of people did understand or do understand that that is the case. I think a lot of us operate under that uh, that veil of of confusion as to how generic drugs are founded. And so I think it was great the way that you were able to expose that and provide such tremendous insight.
3: Thank you. Yes, that's exactly right. Now, Catherine, is,
2: is this issue with quality also applicable to over-the-counter drugs?
3: Oh, in a huge way. And in fact, it's really? quite a bit worse because over-the-counter drugs are much less regulated than prescription drugs. So when you take an over-the-counter drug, you may be swallowing an aspirin that was made in Hyderabad at a plant where an FDA inspector has never set foot. Worse yet, many of the drugstore chains, and you know, in the U.S., obviously you've got some different chains, but in the U.S., CVS, Duane Reed, Rite Aid, they all have drugstore brands.
2: Right. As we do here. Yeah.
3: And they contract with some of the lowest cost Indian and Chinese manufacturers to produce that. And usually those contracts provide for audits by the drugstore brands that allow uh, the manufacturers to get months of advance notice when they're going to be audited. So the drugstore chain auditors. Show up at a sort of stage set of compliance, right? Into a manufacturing plant that's been completely cleaned up. But I have photographs of some of those plants in their native state, and they are ghastly. I mean, you wouldn't want to set foot in these plants, let alone swallow a pill that had been made there. So, unfortunately, the, and this has been going on now in the US, where have the, there are these eye drops. That are supposed to be sterile over-the-counter eye drops that have been manufactured in India, and we have patients going blind oh. from taking those oh, that's um, in, awful. in numerous states. Uh, and there is a vast recall underway as we speak.
2: Hey, th- this, this, um, <laughs> by the way, while, while you're recounting this information, I'm getting angry again <laughs> the way I did when I was reading the book. Um, this brings light to uh, the FDA, the F- Federal Drug Administration, um, and their role in all of this. And so, perhaps you can give us some background on uh, who the FDA are, how they began, and and uh, what they uh, their role was in in uh, this particular story.
3: You know, first let me say that the FDA, Food and Drug Administration in the U.S., it's it's you know the world's uh, sort of preeminent food and drug regulator. It is. gold standard. In fact, so many countries rely on the judgments of the Food and Drug Administration that whatever they say goes, you know, most countries don't have the budgets to send their own investigators into plants. So basically, they're looking to the FDA to sign off on manufacturing plants. Basically, the concept behind the FDA is that it is responsible For the safety and effectiveness of what amounts to about a quarter of the U.S. economy, you know, anything we swallow, any food or medicine we give to our pets, any medical devices, even cosmetics are regulated under the the food and drug regulations that govern the activities of the FDA, Um, you know, and the FDA was born out of, the expression is that, you know, drug regulation is built on dead bodies. Mm. And that is true. Like Congress essentially does not give the FDA authority until there are disasters. Uh, And there, you know, the FDA was born out of many, many consumer disasters in which there is, you know, Lead and arsenic in in uh, pharmaceuticals and toxins in makeup that cause blindness and I well, mean Upton
4: this... up Sinclair's book The Jungle, uh, you know, a trailblazer for someone like yourself comes to mind as yeah. you know uncovering some of the uh, the true issues that uh, that existed within the the meat packing industry specifically, but also right. in, in food production in general back in the turn of the century in the early 1900s
3: there are true horrors that, you know, that the that the FDA has averted. On the other hand, they are an imperfect agency. They are not sufficiently empowered by Congress to do everything they need to do. You know, they are fighting for a bud- their budget and survival all the time. And so, you know, there is this constant tension between the FDA trying to sort of convince and cajole and encourage industry to improve its standards, partnering with industry to pull up its socks and do better, uh, you know, and the need to investigate and punish bad actors.
2: So er, er, early on uh, in in the history of the FDA, and I think it was in the early 60s, late 50s, there was a huge success on uh, thalidomide. Perhaps you can uh, expand on that.
3: Yeah, Frances Kelsey, who is Canadian originally, was a drug reviewer for the FDA, and the a file related to a drug called thalidomide landed on her desk. Thalidomide was being presented as a treatment for morning sickness in pregnant right. and sort of a miracle uh, remedy. And it was already being taken in Europe uh, and in parts around the world. And Kelsey was suspicious of the application. She felt they didn't explain the efficacy of it clearly enough. They, the evidence that it was safe seemed thin to her. And she started demanding more information from the company. And the company was enraged, tried to go around her, Uh, tried to undermine her with her bosses. But in fact, her judgment uh, that there was a lack of safety data related to this drug held. And the drug was never approved in the U.S.,
2: the, the irony is that it was permitted in Canada, Kelsey, uh, Francis Kelly, Kelsey's uh, home country, and uh, she, she pr- helped protect Americans, but there was no one in Canada to protect Canadians, and there was uh, hundreds of people who were affected.
3: So what is interesting about the thalidomide crisis is that some thalidomide was distributed uh, in the U.S., a limited amount, because it was given as doctor samples. Mm. Those doctors distributed it to their patients, but needless to say, it was far more limited in its distribution because it was never approved by the FDA. And that is like a shining example of why we need an empowered regulator.
2: And that, that's a great illustration of a, of a huge win for the FDA early in its life. Yeah. Um, do you know, Catherine, by chance, uh, how many drugs are initially approved and then later pulled off the market uh, at the FDA?
3: Yeah, no, I I don't I don't have that answer. I mean, I will say this, which is, once a drug gets approval and it's out of the starting gates, it is quite hard. To pull a drug back. Um, and, you know, one of the things that the FDA really likes to avoid is litigation with companies. Now, that said, it's involved in endless litigation. But right. um, you know, when, once a drug is out, any effort to restrict its use, to put a black box warning on it, that can be very, very challenging. So really it's a, you know, the Approval is a critical moment.
4: Well, Catherine, before we get into the the history of generic drugs themselves, I hope you'll permit me just to take a step back and ask you, how did you get involved as uh, an investigative journalist? You know, how did you get your start in uh, in that field of work?
3: I'm I'm a totally accidental journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a long story, but I'll try to make it short. Which was, I was at Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. And I was studying Paradise Lost. In fact, I have a master's degree in 17th century epic poetry. Wow. And wow. while I was at Oxford, I got a call from an alumnus uh, at my college, which was Brown. And he said, how would you like to go to Europe, figure out how they take care of their elderly and don't come back with a $30,000 bill? So that was being held out to me as a summer job. I was like, God, have you got the wrong person? I know nothing about healthcare. I know, you know nothing about reporting anything. I'm a creative writer studying poetry. Um, but I went, spent a summer in Swedish nursing homes, wrote up a report, came back to the US after my studies and um, was trying to just get a job to support my fiction writing. Mm-hmm. And my resume circulated and I got a call from uh, the public advocate of New York City, Mark Green. He uh, needed to hire a healthcare policy analyst. <laughs> so I had this summer job on my resume. He hired me and I began investigating New York City hospitals. Mm-hmm. And it turned out I was really good at it. So I was writing up these reports that were getting onto the front page of the New York Times. And then at a certain moment, the head of Bellevue Medical Center, who knew Mm -hmm. I was a writer, said, hey, if you want to write anything about Bellevue, we'll open the place up to you. You can, you know, have the run of the place. You could sit in meetings. I was like, great. So I didn't know anything about journalism. And I pitched it as a story to the New York Times magazine. They said yes. But I was employed part-time at Mark Green's office at that time. Uh, So he was a Democrat, and the mayor of New York, Rudolph Giuliani, was a Republican. So the Giuliani administration got wind of the fact that uh, somebody who worked for a Democratic politician's office was going to be writing a story about the city's hospitals for the Times. And they forced the Times to give me an ultimatum If you want to continue writing this article, you got to quit your job. So I was like, okay, I quit my job. And I spent about eight months in the Bellevue emergency room. I was on the trauma pager. I would go in for major accidents. And I spent eight months in the ER and wrote this article for the New York Times Magazine. And that's how I became a healthcare journalist. Wow.
2: What a story. And that's a baptism by fire.
3: Yeah. So I actually, I like to say that I know, more about paradise lost than any healthcare journalist working today <laughs> that is true now,
2: now have, uh, you, you don't have any background in chemistry yet None. you're rhyming off you're rhyming off all of this stuff in your book about these various drugs and how they work and all that uh, how did that come about how, how did you learn all of that
3: so i don't i didn't do very well in high school chemistry which was the last time <clears throat> i darkened a laboratory and well before i became a journalist You know but the essential work of a journalist is to be a student who learns how things work so you know i was uh you know in my office in brooklyn watching you know youtube videos on generic drug manufacturing and i toured laboratories and i developed sources i you know have spent a lot of time in manufacturing plants so you educate yourself. Very impressive. Thank you. So yeah, I, I am not I'm not a pharmacist. I'm not a doctor. I have no <laughs> medical training. I have very little scientific training. Yeah.
4: Excellent. So and that is truly impressive, Catherine, that you're able to self be so eloquently self-taught. Uh, and, and so knowledgeable on a subject that you were largely unfamiliar with prior to, you, uh, to starting your your career. But uh, to take this back to the story that we're, we're covering today, how and why did generic drugs get their start? Can you tell us a little bit about the Hatch-Waxman Act and how that uh, was basically a catalyst for the evolution of the generic drug uh, industry within uh, North America, but then obviously across the world?
3: So... When, you know, when branded drugs come on the market, those manufacturers have done extensive clinical trials with hundreds, if not thousands of volunteers uh, and done extensive testing, often over decades. It costs millions and millions to launch a new drug. So in the 19, there were in the 1980s, late 1970s, there were. You know many branded drugs that were had gone off patent, but the problem was that for generic drug makers there was there was no unique pathway within the FDA for bringing those drugs to market. In other words, the requirements remained the same: clinical trials with hundreds of volunteers, endless paperwork, mm-hmm. you know millions and millions of dollars in investment. So there became an awareness that there should be a unique truncated pathway at the FDA for bringing a generic drug to market. So um, that's what the Hatch-Waxman Act did, was it developed this unique pathway for approval of a generic drug. Had to be the same molecule taken by the same uh, route of administration, so generic you know, brand name pill, you had to have a generic pill, or if it's an injection, it had to be an injection. But you could do safety and effectiveness testing on a much smaller group of clinical volunteers, you had much fewer paperwork demands, you know, but you had to take certain essential steps, Mm -hmm. uh, certain kinds of testing, stability testing. And then you had to prove that your drug had roughly the same absorption into the bloodstream as the brand name drug, um, but it was much easier, much cheaper, and much faster. So that is what the Hatch-Waxman Act provided for. But the Hatch-Waxman Act did one other thing that is very important in the story of Bottle of Lies. So generic drug makers were saying to legislators, look, If I have to bring a generic drug to market, I'm likely going to be sued by the branded drug maker. I'm going to face an uncertain result at the FDA. So I have all these upfront costs. I have these legal battles. I might not be approved by the FDA. So what do I get if I bring a generic drug to market and I succeed? The Hatch-Waxman Act created something called first to file. Mm -hmm. If a generic drug maker was the first to put down its application and succeeded in being first to market, it got six months of exclusivity on the U.S. market at roughly 80% of the brand name price. After those six months, generic competitors could jump in, The, the price would drop significantly. But those six months were the windfall. They were the bonanza that everybody in the industry started chasing. So just as a, for instance, generic Lipitor. It was a an Indian company called Rambaxi, which I know we'll talk a lot more about, which mm-hmm. won the first to file for generic Lipitor. As a result of that, it was worth about, six months was worth about $600 million in sales. In fact, they made $100 million in the first 20 think it was 100 million in the first 24 hours
4: my goodness uh, wow
3: through advanced sales wow so that is real money
4: yeah major incentive to major incentive obviously be the the first to file and you know reading your description of it the all of these drug executives camped out in front of the fda for uh, for almost two weeks on end just waiting to get in and and go and it, it reminds me of you know christmas eve or uh boxing day you know at a best buy or something when they're releasing the latest electronic and you get people camping out there for days and days hoping to get one of the limited supply that they have in stock and 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 to think about that for people who are high up in these drug manufacturing uh, companies is absolutely mind-boggling and so i think this is a, a great place to to start so tell us you know how does the how does the story begin? Tell us a little bit about who Ran Baxi is, who you just obviously brought up, and and what transpired at the company, and who were some of the key players who uh, fe- who featured prominently in the story?
3: Well, if I may, let's take it back to how I first started investigating this, sure. because that will allow me to unfold the story of okay. in in an, in a way that's easy to follow. So it was 2008. And I got a call, um, you know, at that point, I was well known as an investigative healthcare journalist. And I got a call from a guy named Joe Graydon, who had an NPR radio program called the People's Pharmacy. And he said to me, I am getting flooded with complaints from my listeners about their generic drugs. I'm getting these complaints that the drugs don't work or they have side effects. There's all these problems. And then he said that he had taken those complaints to the FDA and officials there had told him, um, you know, it was probably psychosomatic. If patients' drugs don't work, you know, it's because the drug maybe changed color or shape. And so they think there's something wrong with it, even though there isn't. So Joe Graydon did not believe that. And he put this question to me. He said, what is wrong with the drugs? So I was like, yeah, what's wrong with the drugs? What an interesting question. Like, how hard could that be to figure out? That was, you know, 10 years later, I was like, okay.
4: (laughs) That's quite the wormhole to uh, go down.
3: Yeah. So I start investigating and pretty quickly, I was able to establish some of what he was talking about. There were patients who had been on these terrible medical odysseys who had developed horrible symptoms went to specialist after specialist, and then finally realized their symptoms began at the point that they went and got a medication change at the pharmacy. Then there were, it was interesting, there were medical societies in the U.S. for for specialties that work with drugs that require very special dosing. So neurologists, psychiatrists, endocrinologists, cardiologists, and some of those medical societies had actually issued alerts to their doctors to think about pharmaceutical shifts, you know, changes between generics or from brand to generic if they see a sudden onset of symptoms. So it was like, okay, this is actually a problem that doctors are becoming aware of, right? So I did this story in Self Magazine in 2009 uh, about this. And I was really the first journalist to expose this quality problem with generics. Right. But, you know, I was not very satisfied with that story because I kept thinking about Joe Graydon's question, what is wrong with the drugs? And was like, "Okay, it doesn't tell me what's wrong with the drugs. It tells me that something may be wrong with the drugs. But what? So it was about a month after uh, that story published, and I get this email from an anonymous source uh, who was calling himself $4 refill, which is, of course, like what you'd pay if you go to Walgreens or something uh, or Walmart and you get a generic Mm -hmm. refill. So he basically says to me over email that if I want to figure out what the problem with the drugs are, I need to look at where they're being manufactured, which is in India and China. So I'm like, how am I gonna do that? I'm a independent journalist in Brooklyn, no foreign desk, no anything. Like no no foreign sources. (laughs) I don't know anybody in India. I've never been there. Uh, I'm like, this is sort of impossible. But I'm like, well, I kept thinking about Joe Graydon's question. So I'm like, I feel I should try to figure this out. So I'm trying to figure this out. But while I'm trying to figure it out, I make this very clear decision, which is I'm going to become an expert at generic drug manufacturing. I'm going to learn everything I can about the manufacturing process. I'm going to learn everything about the FDA pathway. I'm going to visit laboratories and I'm going to see what I see. And in the course of doing that, three things happened. First thing was, I go and visit a laboratory. It was called Celsius Laboratory in New Jersey. And I just asked, could I come see how they do stuff? They were at an excellent reputation. So I'm following around the head of quality at this lab, and she's explaining to me how the testing works, et cetera. And then she says right. to me, we ban whiteout throughout the facility, and I'm like, "What does whiteout have to do with drug manufacturing? Like, what's the possible relationship?" Mm-hmm. And then she explains that because data is sacrosanct, right, and that you use a comprehensive, fully transparent uh,
4: sort of process,
3: process, and you have all your data available for scrutiny. And the FDA scrutinizes that when they come in, that is like your Rosetta Stone. You can't alter data. You can't conceal right. data. Right. Um, and so whiteout is like a temptation for a criminal scheme of deleting or altering data. Right.
5: Right. So they
3: ban right. whiteout. So I'm like, huh. Then... I go down to the FDA and that was back in the days where they were a little bit more welcoming of journalists. And I sit mm-hmm. around this conference table with FDA officials and in the room is the head of the Office of Generic Drugs. So I'm interviewing them and I ask this data question. I was like, well, how do you, you know, how do you evaluate the quality of a generic drug? And they say, oh, the manufacturing plant's send us their data. And I'm like, okay. And then I'm like, do you do independent testing of the drugs? So he says, no. And yeah, no independent testing of the drugs. And then he says, the application process requires the ethical behavior of the applicant. Otherwise the whole house of cards will fall down.
5: Oh wow. And
3: I am like, whoa, whoa. You're telling me that the FDA is running its generic drug approvals on an honor system, right? Yeah. That's what he That's was incredible. Saying. I nearly fell off my chair. Yeah. So then I'll we'll take your word him, for it. Then I say to him, What if the applicant is not ethical?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, that was the question. When I started reporting Bottle of Lies, the common wisdom, doctors, pharmacists, they all told me, oh yeah, generic drugs are the same because the requirements are the same. You know, that the generic drug applicant has to follow these requirements. And I'm like, I'm an investigative journalist. Obvious question, like, what if they don't? Mm -hmm. Okay, the third thing that happened is I start hearing about this company I'd never heard of called Rembaxi. Now Rembaxi was a household name in India. It is the biggest drug manufacturer in India. And I found out the justice department had an investigation of Rembaxi um, into the question of whether they had fabricated or altered their quality data in some way. So now I'm like, This is beginning to make sense. Of course, as an investigative journalist, you have to follow the money. So then I found out there's this thing called first to file, which is this gold rush that's built into the generic drug manufacturing process. And I excavated this memo that the FDA had issued, which said, we're a little bit concerned about safety because we've got company representatives that are pitching tents in the FDA parking lot and they're standing on lines for weeks at a time in the FDA parking lot. Then I found out companies were sending in stretch limos and with a team of people who would take turns sleeping and Mm. waiting online, all to be first to file and that um, there had been fist fights that had broken out online and shoving matches with manufacturers shoving one another out of the way. So I'm like, okay, you've got this profit motive. You've got an honor system. You've got companies that are 7,000 miles away from FDA headquarters. I've got this guy, $4 refill, who's telling me to look in India and China. Now I am like seriously interested. Um, Wow. Yeah. So I decided I have to figure out what happened inside Rembaxi. And that brings us, Alex, to your question, what happened inside of Rimbaxi? So we can we can pick up that.
4: Yeah, I I mean, that's obviously there's a tremendous opportunity for moral hazard based on the circumstances that you've laid out there. The fact that there is this tremendous profit incentive and virtually no accountability other than, like you said, personal accountability with regards to the players and the Manufacturer of these uh, pharmaceutical products, and so uh, go
2: ahead, Dad. sorry, Catherine. from From a chronological standpoint, what year is this when you when you're about to begin this pursuit?
3: Yeah, so I mean, I got my first tip in two thousand and eight, and by now, then I had my article in two thousand nine. Then I get my tip from four dollar refill. So now we're at like two thousand and ten, right? And I'm really about to, you know, start this sort of Crazy long distance pursuit of Joe Braden's question. So at this point, I'm a contributor to Fortune magazine. Okay. And I start reporting uh the Rambaxi story for Fortune magazine. Okay. And let me tell you, it took from my beginning that investigation till publication took about three years. Oh wow. Yeah. So this is this reporting is not for impatient people, right? And did it take a lot of convincing? Very good for obsessive people.
4: <laughs> like us, we we are in that category. Did it take a lot of convincing at, at Fortune magazine to receive approval to pursue this to the extent that you did?
3: No, except look, nobody in the U.S. at that point had ever heard of Rambaxi. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, even though it was absolutely a giant in the Indian firmament. But obviously, a question of quality at Rambaxi had giant implications for U.S. consumers. So at that point in time, it was the fastest growing generic drug maker in the U.S.
2: Uh, Catherine, you're uh, beginning the story of Rambaxi and uh, the entire scene in India. Where does PEPFAR, the U.S. government program, fit into all of this?
3: That's a really good question. So Let me back up and say that I think one of the biggest headwinds that I faced in this investigation is, you know, the sense that generics are essential, and it is true. Like, every healthcare system relies on them. They are essential to public health around the world. They've done, maybe in the aggregate, way more good than bad, so... The idea of investigating a quality question for generics was uncomfortable even for me. Politically, I'm all for generics. I, I want everybody to be able to afford medication they need. Sure. Um, So it's not like I had some particular uh, zeal or desire to target the generic drug industry, but you know, I would say what kept me going was the sense that if a drug is not high quality, it's not going to work.
5: Mm-hmm. And
3: there is a essential promise of democratizing access to pharmaceuticals and generics. And if you break that compact by selling substandard drugs for a profit motive, do I want to investigate your company? Oh, yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. Oh, right. yeah,
3: I really do. Um, so that is, you know, that's what kept me going. Um, now, so Rambaxi. They had employed, they brought in two employees who are relevant to this story. Raj Kumar was a very high level, I think he was as trained as a psychiatrist and a very high level employee from where did he come from was it eli Lilly? and he came from one of the big branded companies yeah. and then under and he, they brought him in as the head of research and development you know and rembaxi was growing fast and then under him they brought in a fellow named dinesh Tucker, and he had come from bristol myers Squibb. um and basically what they had brought him in to do was reconcile and organize this fast growing pipeline of drugs, right? So Rambaxi's making generics for many, many countries around the world. Uh, and each one is a different regulator, a different approval process. And so he was supposed to bring order to this research and development pipeline. He was a computer scientist, among other things. So Raj Kumar, and this is in 2005, 2004, yeah. 2005.
2: It was my land, wasn't it, that he was
3: with? No no, no,
2: no, not No, Mylan.
3: no not mylin. He was, he was came from a branded company. So he, so then there's a problem, which is the WHO goes in to inspect this HIV. I guess it was a, it was a contract research organization that was doing clinical testing for for generics, and they were doing clinical testing for Rembaxi, and the inspector uncovers the scheme whereby. There's not like a hundred patients they're testing. There's 10 and they're Xeroxing the results and making 10 look like a hundred. So they're circumventing the proper way of testing. And they send these findings to Rembaxi. basically like your contract research organization is committing fraud. This was in South Africa and Raj Kumar gets on a plane and he goes over there and he's on his way back and his associate at the company, Brambaxi, tells him like, "Uh, well, it's not just the HIV drugs. It's kind of like other drugs. Uh-oh. And he's like, what? You know, and and he's the guy for the company who's saying that the drugs are OK. Right. He's right. like where the buck stops.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: So he calls Dinesh Talker into his office and he's like, all right. You are going to drop everything that you are doing and you are going to investigate our company. Mm-hmm. You are going to delve into every portfolio, every application around the world, and see, do we have any exposure here? Are the is the data we're giving to regulators around the world different? somehow not reflective of the data that we have, the testing that we're doing, right? Are, are we faking our data? Mm-hmm. Dinesh Tucker then realizes that he had a three-year-old boy who had been very sick with an ear infection who had been taking Rambaxi antibiotics and had not gotten better. And they switched it to a brand antibiotic and the boy instantly recovered. Mm-hmm. So Dinesh is like, what is going on?
5: Mm-hmm.
3: So, he starts investigating the company and he stumbles into Rambaxi's open secret. Many, many employees in the company knew that the not only was much of the data faked, but the level of fakery was reflective of the c- country the drugs were being sold to. So right. the drugs for India, where no one checked the data, was all fake. It was just invented.
5: Right. The
3: drugs for Brazil, where all the data was faked, it was just invented. And the more regulated the market became, the more checking there was. But Dinesh Thakur estimated that for the most regulated markets, which was Europe, the U.S., and I guess to some extent Canada, um, or North America, it was maybe 50% faked. Right. So what Dinesh Thakur had uncovered was this global crime.
2: Incredible.
3: He puts together a PowerPoint, uh, which Raj Kumar then shows to the board of directors. I obtained a copy of this PowerPoint, and I will tell you that in the pantheon of corporate documents that I've gotten in my career as an investigative journalist, I've never seen a document like this it lays out very clearly that in for 200 products in over 40 countries, those were submitted with data that was either totally fake, partially fake, somewhat fake.
2: The infamous self-assessment report, the SAR.
3: And you know what? I think your audience is interested in the fact Raj's bosses basically excoriated him because it's like, you start this process of self assessment you're going to create documents you're not going to know where it's going to lead right. and you know you're creating exposure for the company now arguably the exposure came when they decided to fake data for drugs that they were selling all over the world right so but this this self assessment report lays out 200 drug products sold in over 40 countries sold with fake data to support business needs right business needs being financial imperatives
4: i'm picturing jack nicholson in uh uh geez what's the what's the name of the movie um when when he says you can't handle the truth to uh to tom cruise like that's that's what i'm picturing in this boardroom
3: a few good men. a
4: few good men thank you like my goodness the the for him to drop that bombshell on them and I, I'm sure there was probably not a whole lot of people who batted an eye because they, they must have. They must they have knew. known.
3: They knew. They what knew. was going so, on. So Raj Kumar presents this document to this silent boardroom. And then he basically makes clear the only ethical thing to do is withdraw all the drugs, come clean, tell the regulators and retest the drugs. Catherine,
2: right. just to, to to put a little bit of perspective on Raj and Dinesh, these are Indian nationals who early on in their lives moved to the U.S., became educated in the U.S., worked for U.S. companies, and then went back to India. So they had a different ethical uh, and moral compass than did the company in India.
3: You know they very much wanted to support the development the financial economic development of their homeland but at the same time you were right that they are trained corporate cultures um that were quite distinct
4: right Um, and quick quick uh sidebar here catherine was the was their findings limited specifically or solely to the the data and the trial or were there also findings that were uh, cause for concern when it came to cleanliness and health standards that were maintained within the manufacturing facilities themselves?
3: The, the falsification of data was across a wide range of categories, everything from how quickly a drug degraded to, you know, level of toxins in the drugs, impurities microrobial microbicrobial standards I right. mean it was a wide array of issues right
4: because yeah. Yeah. I I seem to recall a portion in the or a passage in the book where you described the the regulator going in and uh, watching everybody uh, you know get all you know dressed up in their gowns and whatnot and they double gloved and he looked at it and said, why are you putting on two layers of gloves? what exactly are you achieving And then noticing on the inside of the door, fingerprints and looking at that and saying that doesn't add up like that doesn't make sense was that at Rambaxi or was that at another uh manufacturing i I know exactly
3: what you're talking about i think that was at a different company but yes they left behind clues that the double gloves were just for show and in fact they were had hands on that knob ungloved clearly
4: and and just reading that and and even discussing it here today it sends chills up and down my spine thinking about what actually goes on and, and versus what is portrayed to us and you know and through the whether it's the media or, or through our just understanding of the industry and we we accept the level of safety and the standards that are utilized are up to what we would expect them to be and, and in fact in many cases they are not.
3: Yeah, yeah. so so Raj Kumar basically makes his position clear to the board that they have to they have only one choice, which is to withdraw these drugs. From the marketplace and come clean with the regulators and the board basically says we're we're going to bury this we want the computer on which this document was created destroyed we want copies of the document destroyed so raj kumar has no choice he leaves the company that leaves dinesh taker completely exposed um with no protection And then the company sends in auditors to start combing through the books of his department and they plant porn on his uh, on his computer.
2: This is the part that's hilarious. It's okay to poison half the planet, but you can't watch porn on your corporate computer.
3: Right. And uh, so he has no choice. He's forced out of the company and he tries. He's just leaves he tries to put it behind him. He's got a young family, he's got <clears> two <throat> kids, wife that he's moved from the US. Um, he's terrified because people who expose corporate secrets in India do not fare well, typically. Many are murdered. There are no whistleblower protections, but he can't live with himself. And he keeps thinking about uh, you know, the poorest of poorest patients in Africa and elsewhere who are getting compromised HIV drugs. He knows they're bad. Mm-hmm. So he decides he's going to pose as a lowly, he's a highly educated, perfect English, but he decides he's going to pose as a as a lowly bench scientist. And he starts, he creates an email account and he starts sending emails to regulators around the world to Anvisa in Brazil, to Cafe Priest in Mexico, to you know European regulators, FDA, WHO, and he starts telling them what's going on and nobody pays any attention. Finally, he just, so frustrated, August of 2005, he writes directly to the FDA commissioner, perfect English, doesn't identify himself and says, This is what's going on in Rembaxi. I plead with you to put a stop to this crime. And that is what gets him in dialogue with the FDA and begins the process of his becoming an official whistleblower. Right. That leads to an eight-year FDA investigation. That was the investigation I first learned about when I learned about Rembaxi. And the FDA, uh, after an eight-year investigation, During which the FDA gives Rambaxi approval after approval to launch new drug products, including generic Lipitor, the first to file in the U.S. Incredible. Incredible. While they're criminally investigating the company and they have this self-assessment report and they know the company is saturated with crime, approval after approval.
4: So how does that happen?
3: (laughs) How does that happen? It's mind-boggling. Honestly, if I tried to explain to you how it happened, we'd be here for a year. It's, it's crazy.
2: Silos. They're operating in independent silos.
3: Yeah. They're friendly to industry. They're operating in silos. The criminal investigators at the FDA O C I at the FDA are not being heard. So Catherine, you know, I gotta
4: ask you, like, does this does your do your findings through this book? make you naturally more skeptical about anything that goes through that that approval process now that fda approval process not to say that everyone in the fda is bad and and that it is uh, that they're intentionally trying to mislead or harm people but are you now naturally more skeptical about anything that comes from from uh, the pharmaceutical industry and, and flows through the fda
3: I don't know if i would say more skeptical because i am by nature skeptical i mean which is why i do what i do uh, you know and bottle of lies is my second book and not my first rodeo so i don't know that i would say i am more skeptical um you know but there are huge political and financial considerations i mean the FDA is hauled in front of Congress and they want to report how many generic drugs they approved, right? right? Um, because we cannot, Americans cannot afford their drugs and we don't have common sense drug price regulation, you know, price regulation. So they're, they're facing a political imperative to to approve these drugs. And then the problem is, If their investigators walk into a plant and they find terrible conditions and they take that plant offline and they halt imports, what's going to happen in the U.S.? We're going to have drug shortages. We're going to have price increases, right? So they're like, got to keep this whole ship running. And the only thing that's going to stop them is litigation, people like me, or like a giant pile of dead bodies. I mean, that's really the truth. That's how it rolls.
2: Catherine, tell us what the role of uh, former President Bill Clinton was in in Rem Baxi's story.
3: So Bill Clinton was really, he had a very special relationship with India. And he was really the person that set the, Indian generic drug industry sort of on its path towards being the world's pharmacy. He was, he visited Rambaxi, he visited a number of Indian drug companies and basically promoted the idea that U.S. taxpayers could pay for cheap Indian generics that would go to Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that idea was crystallized by actually George Bush in a program called PEPFAR,
1: right.
3: uh, which is oh, yeah. a brilliant idea. You know, it's a it's, it's truly the uh, concept of a globalized world whereby we as a wealthy country can pay for Indian generics that will treat HIV patients in Africa. Right. Uh, then what happened was, well, how do we know we can't use taxpayer money to send substandard drugs, so we're going to get these drugs tested, in theory, and approved, regulated, overseen by the FDA? And then, right. of course, a light bulb went off, hey, if our FDA is saying that these drugs are okay and cleared for African patients, why can't they be cleared for U.S. patients? Right. And that's how this whole... Revolution began.
2: Right. You talk about um, in your book the Valentine's Day massacre. Please elaborate.
3: So basically, Dinesh Thakur had brought to the FDA's attention this idea that the that Rembaxi was saturated with fraud. Now the problem, you know, with this globalized pharmaceutical arrangement is that. We don't have U.S. attorneys in India, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have prosecutors there. We can't serve search warrants there. We can't knock down doors there. What we can do is we can send inspectors into manufacturing plants there. The other thing we can do is we can raid corporate headquarters in the U.S. where we do have U.S. attorneys. Right. So the FDA got a search warrant to go and search Rambaxi's, New Jersey, Princeton, New Jersey headquarters. Uh, and it was an amazing moment. You've got these guys on Valentine, on a snowy Valentine's Day. You had these FBI, FDA Office of Criminal Investigation agents with guns on their hips, raiding uh, Rambaxi's corporate headquarters. At first, they thought it was an immigration raid. (laughs) They step away from their desks. And as part of that raid, the FDA gets a hold of a document and the cover page is, do not share this with FDA. And it is a report about how they pushed through this acne drug SOTRET. Uh, Accutane, it's the generic of Accutane based on completely fraudulent data. Uh, So that was one of the important gets, important pieces of information that the FDA extracted from that raid in New Jersey. My God. Somebody
4: who took uh, Accutane (laughs) as well as uh, some other derivations prior to actually getting on the Accutane and and knowing that they, they didn't work until I got on Accutane itself and again like my dad said it, it makes you makes you wonder what the what exactly I was I was putting in my body
2: so Catherine's talking about and uh the the FDA starting to come down on on Rambaxi, and um this brings uh to mind um the uh the super FDA investigator Peter what was Peter name? Baker Peter Baker. Thank you. Peter Baker. Tell us about Peter Baker and how how he changed the culture at the FDA and in the process of investigating uh, these uh, Indian manufacturers.
3: Yeah. So again, to just tell this part of it, I'll just step back and talk a little bit about my investigation. So uh, in 2013, Rambaxi finally pleaded guilty to seven felony counts of fabricating, altering data in a Maryland courtroom. And three days after, two days after they plead guilty, finally, my article runs in Fortune Magazine. Right. 10,000 word article about the inside story of what happened at Rambaxi. Right. I tell the story about Rambaxi. I tell the story about Dinesh Thakur. And he is awarded a whistleblower award of about 38 million dollars for his role in bringing this to to light. Uh, and you know, and I should say, if anybody thinks that what he went through is easy, it, I mean, he spent years as a completely secret whistleblower, became estranged from his family, uh, you know, risked his life. You know, his whole life was torn apart.
2: You you did an excellent job in your book explaining what this man went through in the course of this investigation, and uh, the stress was palpable uh, as you're reading the book. So, yeah. yeah, you you did a really good job. And anyway, I'll let you finish.
3: Thank you. So after that article came out, and it was about maybe a few months after that article came out, I got another anonymous email from somebody new, a new source. And this was an FDA consultant. This person said to me, you need to look into what I call fast drugs. And the consultant explained, so you have fast fashion, you have fast food. So let's say fast fashion, cheap clothing lines, you as a consumer can go in and get some snazzy looking clothes at cut rate. We all know what that means, right? It's made mm-hmm. in a sweatshop overseas, sadly, mm-hmm. workers was in suboptimal conditions. FDA consultant was explaining to me there is the equivalent of pharmaceutical sweatshops overseas, wow. unclean, suboptimal conditions, and... The only defense we have against those pharmaceutical sweatshops and their low quality and low quality ingredients are FDA inspectors. So now I'm thinking, I'm still trying to, so I'm five years in and I'm still trying to answer Joe Graydon's question. What is wrong with the drugs? Mm -hmm. Now I figured out, I know what's wrong with Rembaxi's drugs because they faked all their data, but I have this question, is Rembaxi just this outlier? Or is there something about the generic drug industry that they're just the tip of the iceberg and this is how it works? So I'm like, I got to answer that question in order to answer Joe Graydon's question of what is wrong with the drugs. So I start trying to report out the life of FDA inspectors who go overseas. And I discover this incredible thing, which is here in the US, FDA inspectors show up unannounced. They stay as long as they want. Nobody knows they're coming. But in the U.S., they're calling up two months in advance saying, can we come on such and such a date? They become the invited guest of the pharmaceutical plant. Those plants send luxury cars to pick up the inspectors. They take them to hotel rooms where they upgrade their hotels. They even, get this, bug the hotel rooms.
2: This this is in India.
3: Yeah. Listen Mm -hmm. to their conversations. Wow. Poison... The inspectors with tainted water, because they know that if those inspectors only have four inspectional days, five inspectional days, they can knock off two of those days if they get sick. Mm. So they were giving them uh, tap water. Like they would put, they would have bottles of water. They'd fill them with tap water. They'd seal them up and give them, the inspectors would get sick in their luxury suites They were taking them to the Taj Mahal on tourist Mm -hmm. junkets. I mean, it was insane what was going on, right? Mm -hmm. So these plants were completely cleaning up the premises, right? They were getting rid of monkeys, snakes, pigeons. So Peter Baker, he's a young guy, very computer savvy. He shows up at these plants. They know he's coming. They give him the dog and pony show. Then he says, as is his right, I want to look inside your computers. He doesn't say print out data for me. He mm. says he's looking in the computers. What he finds in plant after plant is they have subterranean testing programs. They pre-test the drugs. They figure out whether they're going to meet specifications. If they won't meet specifications, they alter the testing parameters so the drugs pass then they delete all the evidence of this pre-testing that they've done. And he found the metadata in plant after plant pointing to this pre-testing scheme. So basically, in, you know, and he was, he was having, his life was threatened. They, they threatened him. They followed him. They bugged his hotel room. They gave him tainted water. And they knew if Peter Baker shows up in your plant, you're going to be taken offline and it's going to cost you hundreds of millions of dollars. So they went to these elaborate lengths to deceive him. In most cases, they couldn't. So it turned out, and I can't remember what the exact number it is, but it's like in seven-eighths of the plants that he went to in India and China, he found evidence of this. So that, it was through my reporting on Peter Baker and what he uncovered, that I began to be satisfied that I had an answer to Joe Graydon's question, what is wrong with the drugs, that the prevalence of this, of fabricating data was so widespread. You know, once, once I uncovered what Peter Baker had found, and I realized the inspectors from FDA who are actually doing their jobs are walking in and they're finding horrible conditions. So There were like two, one of the most shocking things, two aseptic plants in India that were supposed to be operating with perfect sterilization procedures, doing all sorts of microbial testing, uh, surfaces, water. Baker and his colleagues discovered they weren't testing anything. There were all the vials, there were all the test results and there were no tests run all the tat te- all the testing data the microbial testing data was fabricated so one of the ways that they figured this out is they they did a pilot program and they did no notice and sh- short notice inspections um in other words they stopped giving two months of advance notice once they did that the The rate of findings of official action indicated, which is the worst findings, right? That official action indicated means not, please fix this. It means emergency. If this doesn't get fixed, we're taking you offline now. Mm-hmm. The rate of official action indicated findings went up about
4: 60%. I was just going to ask you, Catherine. So what what ultimately becomes of Rand Baxi and, and their CEO, Melvinder Singh? What is, how, how does this... How does this company, this completely flawed and, and completely morally bankrupt organization, do they, do they stop functioning? Do they get shut down? What happens to them?
3: This is unfortunately a very dark tale um, because once Malvinder Singh and his brother, who, uh, who owned Rambaxi uh, and inherited it from their grandfather... Once they realize that the FBI is onto them and that they're under criminal investigation by the US Justice Department, what they do is put themselves up for sale. Mm-hmm. And a Japanese company, Daiichi Sankyo, decides, hey, we want a footprint in all these underserved markets. This is a great opportunity for us. They, their lawyers get rolled by the Singh brothers, right? The Singh brothers conceal all this evidence uh, of this uh, criminal investigation and they sell themselves for $2 billion. Wow. Thank you. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. So they're laughing all the way to the bank and it's not long after this sale goes through that, Rambaxi is hit with these criminal, you know, these felony counts that there's ultimately a negotiated settlement, $500 million to settle the Justice Department claims. And guess who's on the hook for it? (laughs) Daiichi Sankyo. So then Daiichi Sankyo, to redeem itself for shareholders, they sue the sing brothers and rambaxi and so begins this new odyssey of litigation i mean the end result is that rambaxi ceases to exist as an international company you know and i have to say i think that the chapters uh on how the sing brothers deceive that very nice you know japanese uh, company is sort of like a reverse godzilla movie yeah. it is a sad <laughs> story
2: now they did get some some money back did they not
3: yeah they did they there was ultimately a settlement but i mean it's a very it's a very bitter chapter and it's a very dark chapter for indian pharma
4: right is is there an appendix to this story since 2019 has the the industry improved at all and and does the u.s still import generics from india and china to this day
3: Well, I would like to tell you that I made it all better. Unfortunately, that is not true. So what happened was um, there were a a number of congressional hearings after my book came out. The FDA announced, okay, we're not going to be the invited guests of these pharmaceutical companies anymore. We're going to make our own travel arrangements, right, Mm -hmm. and stay on our own dime in India and not take the trips to the Taj Mahal anymore. So it looked like things were beginning to turn around. Then COVID struck, and the FDA had to cancel all of its overseas inspections. And I will not forget the press release that the FDA sent out saying, don't worry, even though we can't go in person, the companies will be submitting data (laughs) we will be using to review the quality of the drugs, and it's all good.
2: Is this 2005 again? again? <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> oh so, my god. So now start up again in 2023 they start going back to these companies that they haven't set foot in these manufacturing plants they haven't set foot in in 3 years and lo and behold it is a total disaster. Wow. So they are there's company after company where they are finding terrible terrible things. And I'm sure they told are, everyone
4: this time it'll be different. This yeah. time they'll be okay. Yeah. Just
2: just to uh, shed some light for our Canadian listeners um, uh, here in Canada, I was uh, looking up the sources of uh, generic manufacturers that we're utilizing here. Uh, we are here in Canada utilizing some Indian and some uh, Chinese generic drugs. They are a small percentage, I think 5% of the overall supply. But nonetheless, uh, we are exposed here in, in Canada as well. And Catherine... What are you working on right now?
3: You know, I was busy promoting Bottle of Lies uh, when COVID struck, and that is when I got a call from Vanity Fair to come and cover COVID for them. So I have been at Vanity Fair since, I guess it was March. Uh, no, uh, March of twenty twenty. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. covering COVID for them, and that's where I am to this day. Yeah. So I. Uh, you know, I'm doing all kinds of investigative science, medicine, healthcare. care.
2: So, so when you say you're covering COVID, what exactly are you covering?
3: Well, I have been deep into the reporting on the very contested question of where COVID originated. Right. OK. And, uh, you know, the question of whether it came from a lab or whether it came from a natural origin in a market. Right. And you may know uh, our intelligence agencies are divided on that question.
5: Right. Yes.
3: So it is far from resolved, but I will say this, after spending 10 years investigating Chinese and Indian manufacturing plants and seeing the incredible things that can go wrong, the state of regulation, I understood very quickly that a lab origin was a possibility.
2: Right. Yeah, Right. Absolutely. Well, wow. well, wow. cliff, cliff, cliffhanger until next time. And, and we hear more from you. Where, where can uh, people interested go to learn about uh, what work you're doing right now?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I recommend you can get on my mailing list um mm-hmm. at CatherineEban.com is my website. You can sign up for my mailing list there. Excellent. You can follow me on Twitter, now known as X, at Catherine Eban. Um, you know that's where I'm sort of most active. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can find me there.
2: Catherine, uh, you are a remarkable individual, an incredible investigative reporter, an exceptional writer. Your book was one of the my favorite books of all time. As I said, when I was reading it, I could not put it down. Um, if if you were in the in the fiction space, uh, I'm not sure what what genre you would be under, but it would be a genre that to me would be like a like a a, a spy thriller. Uh, just phenomenal. Uh, we really wish to thank you for taking your time and uh, spending it with us this afternoon and uh, telling us all about bottle of lies. we encourage everyone who's listening to this to run out and uh, and pick up the book from their local bookstore or order it through Amazon or whatever whichever way you buy your books.
4: Thank you very much again Catherine. We really appreciate you coming on.
3: Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. I enjoyed our conversation a lot. Thank you. Thank
2: you very much Bill, take it away.
1: Well, you know, I I don't want to take it away because I've got to tell you, I've been sitting here for the last hour and a half, completely riveted. Catherine, first of all, thank you for your work. Really do appreciate the fact that you put so much effort, commitment, and integrity into what you're doing, and and thank you for that. Second, it's not a hollow thing. I went and bought the book while we were having the conversation. So (laughs) I would urge your listeners to go out and buy this book, As well, do it. And the other thing you could do that doesn't cost you any money is you get to subscribe (laughs) for this podcast. That way, you don't, you know, won't miss another episode of it. You won't have to worry about where or when you heard it because you'll get it delivered to you immediately. But before we go, we we know how to reach Catherine. Guys, how do we get a hold of y'all? What what, what do we need to do if we want to reach out and have a further conversation with MedWealth Financial?
4: Absolutely, Bill. They can go to our website, which is. Uh, medwealth.ca that's med-wealth.ca
1: guys thank you so much
0: thank you for listening to prescribing prosperity visit our website at med-wealth.ca that's med-wealth.ca for more information or to connect with us for a consultation Don't forget to click the follow button to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and their guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of IPC Securities Corporation. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of a qualified and licensed financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment or retirement planning. Medwell Financial Services can provide a private consultation to help you determine the suitability of any guidance discussed on the show.